Please take out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to 2 Samuel. You remember that on evenings that I preach, uh, I've been preaching through the life of David, and so we've come now to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel and 1 Samuel in the Hebrew Bible were originally one continuous book. They were divided uh, through the years, and so you have sort of an unnatural uh, division there. Um, 2 Samuel, David has just heard of the, about the death of Saul and Jonathan. And if you remember from a few weeks ago when I preached, uh, from this, uh, the beginning passage of 2 Samuel, we, we, we knew what David didn't know. We already knew that Saul and Jonathan had died. Jonathan uh, was David's best friend. Saul was the king who sought David's life. Uh, and David responded with great grief. He called for a day of fasting. And now, as we come into the next section, we're going to look at David's lament for Saul and Jonathan. You know, one of the things Pastor Walton talked about a couple of Sunday evenings ago, I've talked about it during our study of the end times uh, during Sunday school, is one of the questions we need to ask when we're studying the scriptures is, what genre am I reading? So, for example, you read historical narrative a little bit differently than you read poetry, which you read a little bit differently than you read prophecy or apocalyptic literature. Each of them have different, different angles, different uh, literary characteristics that are helpful to understand. Well, tonight we're going to look at a different genre, perhaps one that we haven't really studied in this church. If we have, it's been a couple of years, and that is the genre of lament. Lament is thoughtful grief or biblically informed grief. It's, it's not an emotional outpouring the way that we actually saw David do in the beginning of this section as he rips his, his robe and, and, and fasts and he's crying out, but lament is a more careful and thoughtful expression of grief due to loss or sorrow. A lament is an intentional training of our minds to think clearly, honestly, and most importantly about our grief. It, it puts the emotions related to grief through the grid of Scripture, not necessarily to speak to others, but to speak to ourselves about what we've experienced in our grief. And that's what David is doing here in our text. He's the king-elect now that Saul has died, and he gives us a lesson in lament, a lesson in how to grieve well. So listen to the reading of God's word, Second Samuel 1, starting at verse 17. And David lamented with his, this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son, and he said that it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it's written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen! Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain among you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, 
In life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant you have been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In 1985, author Neil Postman released a a landmark book entitled Amusing Ourselves to Death. In this book, Postman, who, who refers to himself as a secular Jew, wrote with incredible insight about the effects that constant amusement and entertainment and distraction were having on us. Now, just remember, he's writing this 38 years ago. A little bit has changed from a technology standpoint that he was thinking primarily of television 38 years ago. So I can't imagine what he'd have to say about iPhones that are loaded with social media and YouTube and Netflix. Uh, But Postman did a fascinating contrast. He explained that in 1985, America sort of had an internal celebration, and that was they had just come through 1984. 1984 was the subject of George Orwell's book, and, and it was Orwell's prophecy that America would be under intense oppression by Big Brother. And so reaching 1985 was, in a sense, a reason for celebration because Big Brother was not looking over everybody's shoulder. In other words, the American experiment might just work. But Postman pointed out that while Orwell's prophecy of oppression may not have unfolded the way many people expected, or Orwell expected, Another doomsday prophecy was coming true, and that was Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Whereas Orwell had warned that we would be overcome by externally imposed oppression by Big Brother, Huxley saw no need for Big Brother to deprive people of their autonomy and maturity and history, because as Huxley warned, people will come to love their oppression and adore the same technologies that undo their capacities to think. Whereas Orwell feared Big Brother would ban books, Huxley feared there would be no need to ban books because people wouldn't read anyways. Whereas Orwell feared we would become a captive culture, Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture who lacked the ability to really think critically and process life with emotional maturity. And Postman concluded, remember 1985, people will come to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. I'm not a cultural critic in any sense, uh, not skilled to speak the way Postman was, but I do suspect that many of our problems today in culture are exactly what Postman prophesied. We've surrendered the capacity to have thoughtful discussions and, and really to know our own thought life, our own inward thought life. We've traded it in exchange for endless amusement. And to make matters worse, in a sense, we're, we're suffering universally from Stockholm Syndrome. Uh, 
And, and you know what that is, where you're captive, but you've, you've fallen in love with your captor. Well, our captor is our devices. It's our constant distractions, and, and we love them. And Christians aren't immune. You see how this has come into churches today. Far more emphasis is put on entertainment than edification, on distraction than doctrine, on amusement over adoration. And that's why most of us would look at a passage like this as David is lamenting the deaths of Saul and Jonathan, and we're just not sure what to do with it. I heard a pastor one time say, Christians have forgotten how to sing in a minor key. Uh, We're not sure what to do with, with lament. Because lament is almost impossible in an age of distraction. Rather than thoughtfully processing our emotions of grief, we tend to anesthetize them with one more piece of entertainment, one more Netflix binge. And and so we're not sure how to process grief and sorrow. We, We hope that time will heal all wounds, and it can take away some of the acuteness, but oftentimes grief doesn't really let up until we have honest dialogue with God rooted in his word. And that's what lament teaches us to do. So as we look at this text this evening, we're going to look at three things that I think are are helpful for Christians to experience good grief, uh, to experience lament uh, from a a biblical perspective. The first is we're going to think about a theology of mortality. Second, we're going to think about these lessons in lament that David's giving us here. And then third, we're going to think about a call to war. That may be something that didn't immediately stand out to you, but we'll get there. First, a theology of mortality. David receives news of Saul and Jonathan's death, and his, his, his response really is a bit surprising, because if I'm David, and I've spent the last uh, two decades or so fleeing Saul's persecution, I might be ready to throw a party. I, I might be ready to celebrate that Saul's gone. But David grieves. Why? I think because the appropriate response to death is sober grieving. The poet John Donne said, Any man's death diminishes me because I'm involved in mankind, and therefore I never know for whom the bell will toll. It tolls for thee. Shakespeare adds to the sense of sobriety in Macbeth that death summons thee to heaven or to hell. Culturally, we we try to deal with death by softening it, and so we rarely talk about, we rarely say people die, we we soften it by saying they passed away. Increasingly rare are solemn funeral services today, they've been replaced by celebrations of life, just proving we don't know how to face the sobering reality of mortality. There's a reason, though, I, I think we don't handle death well, and that's because death is not natural. Um, Forrest Gump's mom was wrong. Dying's not just part of living. It's a cursed intrusion into God-given life. Of course, we all mourn tragedies, but even when someone in old age dies, it's, it is tragic. When the Bible 
talks about death. It never softens the language of death. It presents our, uh, us with the cold, hard facts. You know, one scholar says that according to the Bible, there are, uh, according to their studies of the scriptures, there's at least three million deaths accounted for between Genesis and Revelation. And the Bible speaks honestly about it. That's why Jesus, when he comes to the grave of, of Lazarus, even though he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus wept, not because he wouldn't see his friend again, but because of the damage and the, the destruction that death has wrought in God's good world. We need to understand death is sin's penalty. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, death is not natural. It's the penalty for the inborn natural sense of rebellion that we have because of our fallen nature. And there's nothing to celebrate about that. So death is a penalty, but it's also an enemy. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Death is the last enemy to be destroyed. Death exists because Satan hates the souls of men because we bear the image of God. And therefore, his mind is set on our destruction. And because after death comes judgment, you know that from Hebrews, it is appointed uh, to man to die once and then comes judgment. The enemy desires to deceive us about the urgency of facing death while we're alive. Uh, every once in a while, I, I, I am with folks as they are, are preparing to die. And I've, I've been around hospice workers and a big part of a hospice worker's job is to assist people as they come to death. And one of the, I, I'm very thankful uh, for what they do. But oftentimes I'll hear unbelievers uh, working with hospice uh, make the statement that whoever the person is has come to, has made peace with death. And I certainly understand what they mean, but, you know, we don't make peace with enemies, do we? That, that was what Neville Chamberlain's remembered for, the, the former British prime minister. He is immortalized because of a statement he made in 1939 after meeting with Hitler, we have peace for our time. And if you know the history of it, less than a year later, Hitler invaded Poland and World War II was well underway. You can't make peace with enemies. Enemies must be vanquished. And so sin is an enemy. It's a penalty. But third... Thanks be to God, Christ has the victory. Uh, the late, great Scottish pastor William Still used to say that when death took on Jesus of Nazareth, death took on too much. John Owen masterfully wrote a book called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. We come to the book of Revelation. What does it say? Death shall be no more. Death will come. And our way to deal with death is not to make peace with it. We need to make peace with Jesus instead. And if we make peace with Jesus Christ through his blood offered at the cross, then then, and then only can we actually have peace with death because Jesus has conquered it. And so when you've been reconciled to God through Christ, the sting of death is taken away. Certainly we still die. Death will only ultimately be destroyed when Christ returns. But now to us, to the believer, death is like a snake with no venom. It can bite you, but it cannot destroy. 
In fact, Christian, death brings life. There's a great poem, it is not death to die, to leave this weary road and join the saints who dwell on high, who found their home with God. So this, uh, the theology of mortality, in a sense, it leaves the Christian in a unique spot. We, we both lament and we rejoice in death. David here shows us what lament looks like. And so we move now to these lessons in lament. Remember, we define lament as biblically informed, thoughtful grieving. It's grief where we, rather than allowing our emotions to dictate our experience, we preach the truths of Scripture to our own souls, to our emotions, to our minds. And that's what David's doing here. I want to look at a couple of lessons he teaches us. One of them is, the first is he laments intentionally. David laments intentionally. He, he, he doesn't just stuff up his emotions. And, and sometimes you might expect that because David was a warrior. But remember, David was also a Renaissance man. He was a shepherd. He was a leader. He was a poet. He wrote at least 73 of the Psalms, several of which are, are laments. He was a manly man, but he wasn't a brute. He was emotionally mature. Luther called the Psalms the anatomy of the human soul. In writing the lament, David realizes that the complexity of emotions that he experiences with Saul's death need to be processed. He can't just stuff them away and pretend that all's well. On the one hand, David had been a friend early on in Saul's house, a servant in Saul's house. David firmly believed Saul was God's anointed and therefore wouldn't raise his hand against Saul. And at the same time, David spent a couple of decades fleeing from Saul as Saul tried to kill him. And so there was an emotional complexity of grief that needed to be processed and articulated, lest David stuff it all down and it paralyze him. And some of it, we can relate to that, can't we? We've had people in our lives who've, who've died. We, we've been through other things. You may have been through a divorce. You may have, have, have been through other traumas that maybe other people in this room just couldn't understand. We, we have this broad spectrum of memories and emotions about that loss. And, and it may range from deep sorrow to to lingering anger, to nagging guilt. Words that you spoke that you can't take back or words that you failed to speak and you wonder, if I had spoken those words, would things have turned out differently? This side of glory, those things probably will not be reconciled. What we do in lament is take the honesty of those complex emotions and lay them before God. What is true about this experience according to Scripture? And so you imagine a scenario where somebody has intense guilt, sorrow about loss. What lament looks like in that situation is going to the Scriptures and saying, soul, here is what you need to believe about this death, about this loss, and in a sense, in lament, you preach to yourself. Now, whether you have to write it down or not, that's up to you. 
but going before the scriptures and thoughtfully grieving in a way that is biblically true. And so our, our laments may not all be reconciled this side of glory, but they don't have to cripple us. Take them the, before the Lord in honest grief, honest lament, and shine the light of the gospel into the darkness of sorrow. So David laments intentionally. The second thing he does is he laments communally. You know, as Christians, we are called to weep with those who weep. We're not called to be hypocrites who pretend that all's well all the time. And, and when Christians put on a cold, austere face and pretend that we can just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and get through it, not only do we hurt ourselves, but we, we, fa- we, we portray to the world our own hypocrisy. Christians are called to weep and weep well. And there's a communal aspect to grief. You know, that's, that's part of why we encourage funeral services. Sometimes people will say to me, I don't want a funeral. And I'll say to them, you don't get a choice. You'll be gone. Because the funeral's not about you. It's about those who are, are left behind and are grieving for you. And because Christians really understand that, cruel, that, that death is a cruel interloper, we really can weep. You know, David here, he's, he's not only lamenting for himself, but he's teaching Israel how to do it. He's teaching Israel how to grieve. He tells them this song, uh, this, this lament should be taught to the children. It should be taught to the warriors. You know, children have, have long run through the streets singing their songs about David. Saul has killed his thousands. David is tens of thousands, and David wants to say yes, but there is a side that you need to understand about dealing with grief. Put it to song, he says. And so David's teaching us how to grieve, and just a word to the men of this church. This is difficult because a lot of us were taught that men don't cry, that we just sort of stuff it all down and, and march on. David teaches us that not only do we need to lament, but we need to shepherd our families in that. We need to walk with our families through our grief. And so we weep, and as we weep with our families, we teach the next generation. If you have children, you're teaching the next generation how to lament as well. And so David laments communally. And third, David teaches us to lament honestly. When David lost his infant son due to his own adultery with Bathsheba, he says in 2 Samuel chapter 12, I shall go to him. We don't have time to have a full discussion of covenant theology tonight, but David believed that this covenant child, even with all David's sin that was behind it, he believed that this covenant child would be uh, what our Westminster Confession calls among the elect infants who die in their infancy. And so David believes firmly, I will see this child again. He didn't express the same hope when his rebel son Absalom died. And he doesn't express that hope here in the death of Saul. Sometimes we want to preach people into heaven, don't we? Sort of salvation by funeral. And so 
there's a tendency to take people who had no ostensible evidence of a relationship with Christ, who did not trust in him, and to preach them into heaven. Not only is that dishonest, it's a denial of the gospel. And we don't see David doing that here. He doesn't say Saul's in a better place. He grieves honestly, and, and, and grieving honestly requires that it's not so much that we look at the content of a person's life, was this a good person or a bad person, but we look at their connection to Christ. And so David teaches us in Psalm 116, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. What is a saint? Uh, Pastor Walton taught us this on Wednesday evening, did an outstanding job, but a saint is anyone who has trusted in Christ for salvation. They are pronounced saints. They're pronounced holy. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We can't wish people into heaven. We can't preach people into heaven. Honest lamenting means that we consider death in the light of the truths of the gospel particularly in the light of the final resurrection, that, that all will be resurrected, some resurrected to everlasting life and some to everlasting death. You know, Paul addresses this with the Thessalonians. We've looked at this several times during Sunday school lately because it, it, it precipitates a discussion about the end times, but the Thessalonians are upset because they, they've got people in their own congregation who are dying and Jesus hasn't returned. Does that mean they're going to miss the resurrection? Does that mean that they're going to miss the day of the Lord? And Paul starts to address them. First Thessalonians 4.13, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Honest lament means that we measure, we, we assess our grief in light of the future resurrection. And so Paul's saying here, in the midst of a world that has no idea how to talk about sin, have no idea, uh, excuse me, about death, no idea how to process death, we grieve, but we don't grieve like those who have no hope. We grieve as those who look forward to the resurrection. And everybody's standing in the day of the resurrection is related to where they stood with the Lord Jesus. There's one more thing I want you to see, and it's probably not immediately going to stand out to you, and if I don't explain it well, it still may not stand out to you. But that's a call to war. There's something peculiar that happens in the translation of verse 18, and our editors, I think in almost every version, the, the translators try to simplify it for us. Look at verse 18. The ESV says... And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. Well, in the Hebrew, that word it is kaset, which actually meant the song of the bow. David wrote this lament to be a call to war. That's why the young men were supposed to learn it. Because this was a war call, and that seems so weird that David would write a, a song, a dirge, about the death of a man who almost destroyed the kingdom. But David was so grieved for the nation, for the people that he loved. He looked at Gilboa where Saul and Jonathan died, and he said, this is our war cry. 
And so look at verse 19. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. The picture is clear. The Philistines are going to be dancing around town, celebrating that Israel is defeated, Saul is dead, and that Yahweh, he fell at the feet of Dagon. David wants these men to remember what happened at Gilboa as their motivation to go and to fight. That's all good and well, but why does that matter to us? What kind of call to war do we need? There's no Philistines in sight. We don't need to go and avenge Saul's death. So how are we called to war in this passage? Well, we are called to war through gospel worship. We don't take up the physical sword against literal Philistines, but our call to war is the call to worship. Christian worship celebrates the fact that the mightiest of men had once fallen at the hands of the unbelieving world, and yet he rose again and he conquered death. The reality of death, the sobriety of lament, should cast us into Christian worship as we gather to boast like Paul did in 1 Corinthians 15, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? For Christ Jesus has the victory over death. And so as we gather in worship, in a sense, what we're doing is we are taking up arms, uttering the transcendence of God. His authority as the creator of all things. We're, we're rehearsing that great four-part story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And we're being equipped for our calling as agents of reconciliation and restoration and renewal who as we walk out of those doors are called to go into a land of darkness and preach that Jesus Christ has conquered death. We, we confess our sins and we hear the announcement of forgiveness in Christ. And we're equipped through, for the work of ministry. And through prayer, we combat the forces of evil and align ourselves with God's purposes. In some mysterious way, we participate with all the saints even who have gone before us, joining even with those in heaven. That's our warfare, is worship. And as we worship and as we proclaim the excellencies of Christ, the kingdom of darkness is pushed back. And the victory of the Lord Jesus is proclaimed. And the world's going to look at us and say, your warfare consists in worship? And perhaps it does seem ordinary. Uh, maybe we can think of better plans, but remember, God's ways are not our ways. And the height of warfare is Christian worship. It infuriates the evil one when he, as he sees how much God's people love him and how God's redeemed are a sincere people who love the gospel. And as we gather and renew our souls and lock arms with our brethren and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit strengthens us for another week of going out those doors and doing battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And then from worship, we march out of here to the world of death that is anesthetizing itself 
from its pain through constant distraction and amusement and entertainment, and we're saying to them, beloved, look to Christ. We don't say, remember Gilboa. We say, remember Calvary, where Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world. Believe upon the Lord Jesus. Look to him, for he alone can rescue. Let's go before him in prayer. Lord God, we praise you for the great grace of the gospel, that we have hope even in the face of death, and though our, our earthly bodies are decaying, we are being renewed day by day and being fitted, being prepared for heaven. Lord, I do pray, especially for those who, who are lamenting, and some are lamenting recent loss and some are lamenting loss from decades ago. But I pray for all that you would renew in them a hope of the resurrection and that you would give them the, the, the courage and the wisdom to, to speak honestly to their own souls and preach the hope of, of Christ to, the, uh, to their grief. Father, we ask that our worship would strengthen us and please you. In Jesus' name, amen.